I want to welcome you once again to Providence Road Church. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and we are really glad that you're here with us this morning on uh, the day before this important holiday that we're all thinking about, probably called Reformation Day, okay? (laughs) Um, We don't want to forget Reformation Day in this time of year when Martin Luther hammered the 95 Thesis to the door in Wittenberg in 1517, Big bit important day that we celebrate tomorrow. While we're t- and, and I expect you tomorrow to be dressed up as either Luther or Calvin, Zwingli. Like, you get your church history books out, just Google some pictures, you'll be able to find out um, how to dress up for tomorrow for the other holiday. Speaking of the other holiday, um, Halloween. I give this every year. This is my uh, pastoral duty to offer this public service announcement on candy etiquette. As we live missionally, okay, Tootsie Rolls, Milk Duds, bottom, do not give them out, it's not loving, Reese's, Peanut M, those types of things usually kind of in the Hershey family, right, those are great, if you, if you, if you want to go for it, big full-size bars are, are, are best, and if that's you, let me know your address. Because I will not be at my house, but I will give the good stuff. So please love your neighbor well and be mindful of what kind of candy you are giving out um, for Halloween tomorrow. Okay, that's it. I'm done. No more, no more of that. Um, we're continuing on, walking through the book of John, and we find ourselves in chapter 16. Let me pray for the text, and then we'll jump in. Father, we love you this morning. We just want to say that we're, we're um, here to honor you and glorify you and worship you. And we're thankful that you've revealed yourself to us in your word. As we look at your word, as we walk through this passage this morning, I pray that uh, it would change us through the power of the spirit that we know inspired the word. And I pray that as, as we're reading it and trying to comprehend it and understand it, that we would um, kind of put ourselves under the word to allow ourselves to be changed by it. Pray that we wouldn't tune anything out, that we, that we would stay um, engaged knowing that um, this is how you've chosen to reveal yourself primarily to the world, is through your scripture, through the Bible. And we love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So this morning, we are um, in this passage, in this part of the farewell discourse, um, where Jesus is really... Um, giving this great theological overview of the Holy Spirit. And maybe this, this because of the holiday, maybe we call it the Holy Ghost. And just kind of keep on theme with, um, and this is the most important ghost that we're going to talk about. Um, but, but it is um, the most mysterious, and it's often one of the most confused um, parts of our faith. So we really want us to lock in this morning and really see what Jesus is talking about when it comes to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person. He is God. But he is not God the Father and he is not God the Son. He is not not united with them in that way, but they are all God. They are all God, but they are not each other. They are distinct persons, but unified as one God. That's the, the doctrine of the Trinity. This is a doctrine that is core to our faith. That is, is one of the most important doctrines and kind of is, is a glue doctrine that holds all of the other doctrines together is the Trinity. 
Um, but oftentimes the Holy Spirit is the member, the person of the Trinity that often gets left out. Or it's, 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 people get confused when we start talking about the, the Spirit. Or people start getting nervous when you start talking about the Spirit. He's often treated like the crazy uncle of the Trinity or the, the, the Ron Weasley of the Trinity, right? He's just a little different than the other two, right? Or it's like when you're talking about peanut butter and jelly, it's like the bread, right? It's like, why, why don't we always got to leave out the bread? The bread's always there, right? You say PB and J, but you never refer to the bread, right? He is always there. He's always around, but we don't know really what to do with him when we start talking about him. And here's a great examples of this, right? So a couple of studies, theological surveys, um, that have come out in the last couple of years about theology. And um, when asked about the Holy Spirit, I want to just read a couple of these to you. Um, among professed born-again Christians, um, 50% believe the Holy Spirit is not a real living being and is just a symbol representing the presence of God. 50% don't think the Holy Spirit is a person, therefore not a part of the Trinity, just as kind of a symbol representing the presence of God. Another statement in one of these surveys, a different survey, this statement that you can agree or disagree with in various ways, um, the Holy Spirit is a force, but not a personal being. Okay, 19% that answered that strongly disagreed with that statement, which is the right biblical orthodoxy, right? 19%, 7% somewhat disagreed with the statement, 15% were not sure about it, and then moving on the other side of the spectrum, 26% somewhat agreed with that statement. And 33% strongly agreed with that statement. Okay, so nearly 60% of people surveyed, and these were professing born-again Christians that were surveyed, said that the Holy Spirit is a force and not a personal being. Okay, so there's a gap here. There's a massive gap in our understanding of what, who what the Holy Spirit is, and hopefully, just in our, in our short time we got together today, hopefully we'll be able to see um, that these things are, in fact, wrong, and we need to close this gap, and Jesus really helps us in chapters 14 through 16, because he talks a lot about the Holy Spirit. Chapter 14, he uh, talks about the Holy Spirit being the helper, as well as in chapter 14, he talks about the Holy Spirit being the teacher. Chapter 15, he talks about the Holy Spirit being the one who bears witness about who Jesus is. And in this chapter, we see even several more aspects of the Spirit that we're going to look at today, even in greater detail than the previous two chapters. So here's the three kind of points that we're going to walk through today. Number one, he indwells or he empowers believers. We're going to see that first. He, he empowers believers. He lives inside of us. That's first. Number two, he convicts the world. He convicts the world. Two, thir third, um, he reveals truth and exalts the Son. Kind of do those, those, those two things together. He reveals the truth and exalts the Son. So let's look at that first one. He indwells believers. Uh, John 16, verse 4. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. And Jesus is simply saying that there's a, there was a lot for me to cover, right? There was a lot for me to talk about, to teach you. We didn't have time back then to get to the Holy Spirit. He probably also wanted to create some felt need to get them to pay attention to when he was talking about the Spirit. Right, we do this with our kids all the time, right? Those of us who have kids. We, we, uh, we say uh, there's a complex uh, problem or, or topic, and we give them just what they need in that moment, but we don't give them too much because they won't understand it or won't be able to handle it. Jesus is saying the same way, right? There's a lot of important stuff. He's thinking the disciples are thinking, why in the world are you just telling, this now, telling us now when you're about to go away after three years? And he's saying, kind of saying you, you, couldn't under, you couldn't handle it. You couldn't understand it. 
a year ago or two years ago, there was so much else going on, so many other things I needed to teach you about. Let's look at verse 5. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Okay, so first thing we have to do is remember the context. Remember the context that the disciples find themselves in, right? They've, within the last few years, they've left their normal lives and chosen to follow Jesus. They're kind of putting everything on Jesus. They're saying, we're going with you, Lord. We're riding with you. No matter where you go, we're following you. Then just within the last day in this conversation, they've seen Judas, one of, the, one of their guys for the last three years, him bail, completely leave. And Jesus tells them, yeah, he's, he's gonna be, we're, gonna, we're being betrayed by him. And then Jesus tells them that he's leaving. And then he tells them that the world is going to hate you, that he just told them last week. And now we find ourselves here in this moment. Of course, they're feeling sad. Of course, they're being they're, they're, they're gripped with anxiety and fear and all the things that we would have felt more than likely had we been, had we been in their shoes. But Jesus is saying in verses 5 and 6, and I, I kind of wish you would have asked this question, where, where are you going? Because that's the most important question, because I'm going to the Father, and that will create this domino effect of what's going to happen next, which is going to benefit you and be in your favor. But I can imagine Jesus also being... Yeah, I kind of get it that you're not asking that question because you're so distracted about everything that I'm telling you at this point because a lot of it is scary. And then you have verse 7, it is to your advantage that I go away. And what Jesus is saying is the best thing that could ever happen to you is if I leave. It's crazy, right? Jesus, all this time he spent with him for three years and he's telling them the best thing that could happen to you is if I go away. Do we believe this? Do we believe that it is better for us as followers of Jesus in this room to have the Holy Spirit living inside of us than Jesus here in physical bodily form? It's a hard question. I know there are plenty of times in my faith journey where I have wished and said probably out loud, man, I wish Jesus was right here. I wish Jesus was right here physically. I could follow him. I could hear the words actually coming out of his mouth, even though that the whole time that I've been saved, obviously, I've had the Holy Spirit living inside of me. This is an interesting question to think about. But I get, I get Jesus' point why he's saying it's beneficial. If, if Those of you who have kids will, will get this, and I think the rest of you will as well, right? Like when, when there are times when I'm parenting my boys where I just wish I could jump inside their body and make them do what I want them to do, right? Like I just want you to obey me here, buddy. I just, I just want you to trust me that I can see a bigger picture of this than you can, and it is best for you to just do what I'm asking you to do. And it so often falls on deaf ears or rebellious ears, and they don't, they don't hear me or they don't, don't do what I want them to do. I just oftentimes wish I could get inside of them to motivate them from within. And this is exactly what Jesus is saying. It's better for us if there's something living inside of us that's changing us internally to allow us to be obedient to the things that Jesus is calling us to do. Right? There's this movie that I thought of this week that I thought was a really good example. You guys may not find it was, is a good example, but there's this movie in the late 80s, early 90s called Ghost. Patrick Swayze 
character jumps in and out of bodies as the ghost, right? And there's this medium, this, this lady that's Whoopi Goldberg, and she kind of helps him jump in and out of bodies. And he's able to, like, communicate at the end. To the, to the, to the, he gets killed early in, li- in his life, and he's able to kind of still communicate with the... I mean, this is sounding a real, like a terrible movie as I explain it to you. But I promise this is a good, a good illustration, right? Like, we want to be able to get inside of people's bodies to make them feel what we want them to feel. And um, Jesus wants his disciples to feel the same way. Also, in our world, it's difficult, too, because the physical, what's out in front of us, often carries more weight than the spiritual. We want to be able to measure things and test things and, and run things through the scientific method, right? And we want, we want data. We want numbers. We want proof. And Jesus is showing us here that oftentimes those things are incomplete. They're good. They're not bad, but they are incomplete. And Jesus is showing us in this moment that they are complete, that our faith isn't necessarily based on having someone standing in front of us. Our faith is based on more than that. It's also based on the spiritual aspect as well, and this is where the Holy Spirit comes into play. Another benefit, Jesus, instead of being in one place, he's able to be many places at once with the Spirit, right? We, remember, we know that in the three years where Jesus was doing his ministry, he spent most of his time in one geographic sliver of the world. And now with the Holy Spirit indwelling believers and empowering the church all over the world, Jesus in his power is able to be, be felt all over the world at the same time, not just in one location. And he's, um, he, uh, we've already talked about the internal is better than having him external, right? Having something internally inside of us, um, changing us, moving us from within is better than following someone on the outside. Right? And Jesus is not making any kind of statement that... Um, that metaphysically, like, it's impossible for the Son and the Spirit to be in the same place at the same time. That's not what he's teaching, because they were together, and they have been together from before time began in the Trinity, right? So it's not a matter of they can't be in the same place. It's how things are operating. It's how God has laid it out, that the Holy Spirit won't be able to do the things he's called to do with Jesus still in the world. So the Holy Spirit empowers us as followers of Jesus to live the life he's called us to live. Number two, he convicts the world. Look at verse 8. And when he comes, Jesus, again, speaking about the Spirit, he will convict the world. Notice the Holy Spirit is a person. Let's not forget that. Jesus refers to him as a he, not an it. We need to work on even our vocabulary, some of us, when we're talking about the Spirit. The Spirit is a he, not an it. What does convict mean? Well, convict just simply means to to prove wrong, to bring something to light, to expose something. And so when we think of the word word convict, we need to think of a a courtroom, right? A trial where there is is something that is exposed, an aspect of truth that's exposed and proven in the court of law. Uh, One thing that that has been flowing around on the internet in the last couple of weeks is is this, um, and I I couldn't show a picture of this. I I just couldn't do it because I would have had to put a a rated R... um, warning on it but there's this picture that's going around of an of a close-up of an ant have you seen this like they they decided to put an ant's face under a just a blown up microscope to show every detail of his face and you got to be i mean straight out of a horror movie the one of the most scariest things i've ever seen this picture of an ant's face close up right like you would have never known this is what an ant's face actually looks like because they're so small but when they're blown up i mean the antennas look like horns you see their eyes 
Like there's teeth that are like little daggers all throughout their mouth. It is just, just if, if, you want, if you're brave, Google it. Say, close-up picture of ant. I promise it, it'll, it'll pull up. But and even those, those, those um, usually they're trying to get you to buy a vacuum or something. They give you a close-up microscopic picture of your carpet or a rug or like the things that are living in your carpet or rug, right? So, so the convict means it's, it's more of like to bring to light. Something that's already there that you can't see or you don't feel, it actually brings that to life. That's the sense that we need to think of when we think of the world convict, right? And we see these things in the book of Acts, right? Y'all are Googling it now, aren't you? you? I should never put your phone. Well, you got your Bibles, right? Man, I shouldn't have done it. I shouldn't have done it. That was a softball. That was a softball. Okay. Out of your system. Out of your system. Um, we see these things in the book of Acts. It's, if you know the book of Acts, it's great because Jesus is saying, here's what's going to basically happen in the book of Acts. And then Luke, as he's writing the book of Acts, he, he basically tells the story of how all of this happened. Right? We see all of these things the Spirit doing in the book of Acts. Right? So Peter, you know, a cowardly Peter, right? He preaches his sermon in Acts 2, and while he's preaching, Luke describes it in saying that people were cut to the heart. That's a great description or picture of conviction. People were cut to the heart. Now, Jesus never saw this kind of reaction when he was preaching. 5,000 people become saved in one day and, and join um, this, this growing church and believing, right? Was, G, was Peter a better preacher than Jesus? Absolutely not. We would never, ever say that. So what was the difference? The Spirit was moving. The Spirit was convicting. It wasn't Peter's eloquence. It, wasn't, it was the message. G Peter preached the message. The Spirit convicted, and people got saved. Right? And Jesus didn't even have this much fruit directly from his preaching. So this should humble anyone who proclaims the gospel regularly. This should be all of us, by the way. It's not just preachers and teachers. It's, it's those of you who talk about Jesus in your everyday lives. We have to remember and take confidence that this it is the Spirit who convicts. It is the Spirit who moves inside of people, not necessarily our words. He uses us in that way, but it's primarily the Spirit who is working this uh, underneath all of this. Um, and again, it's not just preachers and teachers. I want to make sure that, that I... That I did you heard me? Like the power that the Spirit gives us when he indwells us as followers of Jesus comes out of us when we proclaim the gospel in our everyday lives, right? When we're just living our lives, serving, loving people, intentionally caring for people, how we're speaking about Jesus, how we're, how we're communicating his truth, right? The Spirit is working all of this time underneath the surface and in, in the middle between relationships. So we can have confidence when we're going out talking about Jesus that the Spirit is working. So the other part of this phrase is he convicts the world. And if you were here last week, we kind of defined what the world is. We can't go into that um, all again because of time. But we talked about when John is using world in this context, he's not talking about people, all the people in the world in general. He's not talking about the people outside of the church. Right? He's talking about something a little bit more abstract, the values, the systems, the worldviews of the world, the everything that we're swimming in that we don't really often realize we're swimming in. The, the, the best way that I thought of this week to, to really see this is through the lens of being a consumer, right? So our world is just all about consumption, especially the day and age we live in, right? It's all about consumption. We are all consumers to some degrees. 
And because that's kind of, we're pulled into wanting the nicest thing, the newest thing, the next thing, and promise to make us happy and joyful and freedom. The uh, industries have picked up on that, right? Marketing, sales, and now their goal and their job is to get us to want more of that thing on whatever it is. Like we are swimming in a world of radical consumerism. And so it's not, and so that's part, that's, that's the, the idea of the world that John is talking about here. Are there individuals, people involved in this? Absolutely. We all are to some degree, but it's really that abstract system that, that John is talking about when he talks about the world. So it's important when we think convict the world, he's convicting kind of the systems, but people are a part of those things. And by the way, we have a little bit of the world inside of us all. We still have this human nature, this sinful nature as followers of Jesus that we're not going to get rid of until Jesus returns or we're, we're glorified before him in heaven. And so the world is always tugging at certain places and certain parts of our lives. Now, John tells us the three things the Holy Spirit convicts the world of. In verse, at the end of verse 8, sin, righteousness, and judgment. Okay, so let's look at sin first. Verse 9, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Or he's convicting the world of what is wrong. What is wrong in the world? That's the first place to start, right? See this as like a little three subpoints here of con- conviction, right? He's, con- he's convicting the world of what is wrong. And what is wrong is they don't believe me. So what John or what Jesus is doing here, he's connecting unbelief with our sin. They sin because they don't believe. Right? Unbelief is the root issue or cause of all of our sin. So whatever we're struggling with, whatever we're, area of disobedience we're looking at, if we drill deep enough, at the bottom, at the foundation, is a lack of belief in God in some area. We're looking to the world for something that God has already promised us, but we're saying, I don't believe that's going to satisfy me, therefore I'm going to look at something else to get that joy or purpose or identity or whatever it is. So there's a connection between belief and sin. And we say sin, if that's a strange term for you, if you're kind of new to the church world, sin, um, it, it, it means um, really foundationally just missing the mark of God's holiness. God calls us to perfection. He calls us to holiness, and we all fall short of that. We miss that. That could be disobedience. It could be rebellion. It could be ignoring God. We see this in the garden with Adam and Eve, where they chose, they were given kind of the way of flourishing Adam and Eve were, and they chose to be their own gods. They chose to define what is good and evil for themselves and say, no, 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 I'm not going to really worry about the, the way of God. I'm not gonna really, I don't believe that this is the way of flourishing. I'm going to go my own way. So at the foundation, sin is just kind of wanting to call your own shots, believing that your way is going to lead to flourishing, that you can define right and wrong in the universe and not let it be defined by God. So that is what the Holy Spirit is convicting the world of is sin. And uh, Frederick Bruner in his commentary has a great quote here. The fact that he is God, to not believe in him, is the most wrong and hurtful fact in all of life. We often think of belief in Jesus as a personal taste rather than as the fundamental issue. Oftentimes we get this language of, do you believe in Jesus? And that's, that's, that's true, but it's, it, it can often be in the context of like, is, is that kind of what you're believing in? Is that kind of your deal? Is that your truth? Right? We'll get to that here, here in a second. Right? But this is the foundational thing is to believe in Jesus. And so he convicts the world of sin. He convicts us so that we would see our sin. Right? This is an act of grace and love. This is an act of mercy that he gives people a chance to what the Bible calls repent. A chance to see our sin. 
see our disobedience, and turn to him and enter into a relationship with him. And those of us who have already been through that, and that's our story, right, of being saved in that way, this changes um, kind of the temperature of our evangelism. It gives us some urgency. If we know that one of the Spirit's primary jobs is to convict the world of sin, then that changes how, how we view evangelism, right? It should create urgency. It should raise the temperature inside of us of letting the Spirit do his job through us. Okay, so number one, he convicts the world of sin. Two, uh, verse 10, he convicts the world concerning righteousness. He says, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Really, this, when he says righteousness here, he, he convicts the world of what is most right or what the answer is. Sin was the problem. The righteousness is the answer. And he tells us two things. He says, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And so what he's saying here, most commentators think, when he says, because I go to the Father, he's saying, my work is going to be done. The work I came to do, live my life, die the death, rise from the dead, ascend back to the Father, that's the work he came to do, and now I'm going back to my Father. So there's, there's this completion of the work of Jesus. And then he says, and you will see me no longer, most commentators think, that he's, he's really wanting the disciples to lean in with faith. This idea of, of, of faith is something that we can't see. Right? It's something that we can always see, but we can have certainty in and have hope in that, the scriptures say. So what is most right, Jesus tells us, is the work of Jesus and our faith in that work. These are like the apex pillars that all that is right and good are built upon. Jesus' work and our faith in that. The Apostle Paul, multiple letters in the New Testament, covers this doctrine called the justification by faith alone. Right? And in part, of, it's part of that doctrine um, is described that the righteousness that we receive is from Jesus. It's not our righteousness. It's not our righteousness that it makes us acceptable before God. But Jesus gives us his righteousness when he uh, becomes the substitute for our sin. And it makes us acceptable and right before God. So this idea of convicting the world concerning righteousness, this is what Jesus is speaking about here. The righteousness that is found in him that leads us to have faith. He exposes our sin. He shines the light on what is truly good, right, and perfect in all the universe. Right? That's the sin and then the righteousness, right, what is good, right, in the universe. Now, the third thing, he, he convicts the world concerning, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. What is Jesus talking about here? Well, really, he's talking about the, the Holy Spirit convicting the world of who wins or how does this all turn out in the end. How does the world end, right? It's a big kind of idea, philosophical idea. How does it win? Well, the Holy Spirit's convicting the world concerning judgment or the final judgment, right? The cosmic massive trial between right and wrong. God the Father and Satan, right? God wins. Jesus wins. He wins through his life and his death and his resurrection. Again, back to the context. What do these disciples need most of all? And what we need in a lot of times is hope. Hope that we know how things are going to turn out. And hope in how things are going to end. And no matter how rough our life gets or how bad our life gets or how much our sin and other people's sin just mangles and breaks things, we can know how it is going to end. And the scriptures give us that. And that's, and that's one of the things Jesus says the Holy Spirit convicts the world of, of how all this is going to end. Now, I want you to think back of how you became a Christian, right? Those of you in the room that are Christians, um, one, it probably happened for most of us, the overwhelming majority of us, through a person, either a personal conversation of someone telling you about Jesus, telling you their story about Jesus, or maybe a preacher or a teacher who was 
sharing the gospel in a more public way. That was the first thing that happened, right? And the second thing is that the Holy Spirit began to do something inside of you. And this is the process we just walked through here, right? He awakens us to have faith. He convicts us of our sin. He shines the light on what's wrong with the world and what's wrong with us. And then he also shines the light on the righteousness of Christ, the work of Christ. And then he gives us confidence in the how this is all going to end. And then through all of that, he awakens faith within us. And we say, I, we, I believe. I believe that. I hear that, and the Holy Spirit's working the whole time under gospel proclamation, under people sharing their faith. The Holy Spirit is always working. So to review that part of this text, when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Those three things. Let's look at verse 12. This is the last kind of point today. He reveals the truth and exalts the Son. Verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes... Here's the first important thing. He will guide you into all the truth. All the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come, the future, things that are lie ahead for them. Then verse 14, here's the second important part of this, this paragraph. He will glorify me. It's another role of the Spirit. He will glorify me, Jesus is talking here, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So he will guide us or lead us into all truth. That's the first thing, right? That, that all, all the truth that we're going to be guided into. Now this has a different meaning for us and the apostles. The apostles were receiving this. They would actually then go and write what is most of the New Testament in letters and, 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 and acts and, and, and these kinds of things, right? So they were actually being guided to write down the truth found in the scriptures, and for us, and where we find ourselves in God's story, um, we're guided into understanding the truth, knowing the truth, interpreting the truth, right? Trying to understand the truth for the rest of our lives. And the Spirit is the one who primarily does that. We need to remember that. When we sit down and read the Scriptures, it's the Spirit that's helping us. It's the Spirit that's helping us understand. It's not just our intellects. The Spirit is always working. And what does this mean by truth? Guide you into all the truth. We know that Last week, we looked at, he, he called the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth. He will guide us into all the truth. Now, what this means is this isn't a message about personal taste. And if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, I, I just ask for you to lock in for the next five minutes or so, because this is of utmost importance, that this is talking about the ultimate truth. The Bible clearly states that Jesus suffered and died under Pontius Pilate. It tells us that. Now, Pontius Pilate is a real, accurate, historical figure. What the Bible writers were doing, they were anchoring what Jesus did in history so that we would know, if you didn't believe in Jesus, you have to know who Pontius Pilate is. That, that, that's clear, right? And for us, and, and not for all of us in this room, because some of you are maybe too young, but it would be the same thing that if I said thousands of Americans were killed on 9-11 when terrorists under, under the banner of Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden took control of planes and used them to as massive, uh, massively destructive weapons. And if I'm telling that story, I'm anchoring it in history because of people that I'm telling it to can find places that it's anchored to. to go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's a date. That's a person. I've heard of them. Oh, yeah, that's happened. It's e easier in our day and age because there's so much footage for this, right? So much eyewitness testimony. But there was also eyewitness testimony in Jesus' day as well. So no right-minded person, again, would say, you know what? 
Yeah, I, I get the events of 9-11, but whatever, whatever you find meaningful about these events, events is kind of your personal business, and what I find meaningful about these events is my personal business. And we can just kind of agree to disagree on what actually happened that day. And, but no, 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 we wouldn't, no right-minded person we say, would say that, right? How we feel about truthful events doesn't change the fact that those events are, in fact, true. Right? That is absolute truth. Right? And so in this day and age, when we kind of have everyone's truth, that's your truth, that's my truth, truth is kind of a personal thing, we have to remember that the Spirit is always testifying to the absolute truth found in the person and work of Jesus and the Scriptures. There is an absolute truth we are believing in when we are followers of Jesus. And, I would, and once again, I would say, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, I would say, put your faith and trust in Him. You're hearing the gospel as we speak. Believe it. Believe that Jesus took God's wrath upon himself. And he provided a way for sinful human beings like everyone in this room to be brought back to him, into a relationship with him. And I would just plead with you to believe that today because we believe it is truth. And there's plenty of evidence to show that it is, in fact, um, the ultimate truth. Okay? Verse 14, okay, that's in verse 12. And then the second thing in verse 14, he will glorify Jesus. He will glorify Jesus. Um, notice that in all of this, the Holy Spirit is not centered at all on himself. This is where I think churches and movements can go a little sideways, right? That the Spirit's kind of off doing his own thing like the crazy uncle. He's never, ever, ever doing that. The Spirit is always centered on Jesus. He's very Christocentric in his operations. That's a theological word for being centered on Jesus. He wants to make much of Jesus. His entire focus is to make much of Jesus. The Spirit points to the Son who points to the Father, and Jesus turned around and honors the Spirit for his work. This is how the Trinity operates on earth. J.I. Packer, a great theologian, said that the Spirit has a floodlight ministry. Basically, when a floodlight or a bright light is on something, you don't notice the light. You notice where the rays of that light are pointing. The Spirit's entire ministry is pointing to Jesus. Say, look at him, look at him, watch him, uh, follow him. That is the Spirit's primary role. And the Holy Spirit didn't replace Jesus' ministry, right? Oftentimes we think that now Jesus is just gone, and now we have this new uh, person of the Trinity here to do ministry. He prolonged Jesus' ministry. Because if we say he replaced Jesus' ministry, then it's just kind of the Holy Spirit in operation by himself. He didn't replace Jesus' ministry. He prolonged Jesus' ministry in the, in the age we're still in now, right? Because Jesus obviously has not come back yet. The other interesting thing here we don't have time to get into, but... This phrase, he will declare, speaking of the Spirit, is mentioned three times, once in 13, once in 14, and once in 15. So we see that his work is active. The Spirit is actively declaring. I will, he is declaring, he is declaring, he is declaring. The Spirit desires to declare the things of the truth, the things of Jesus to the world through us. So what do we do with this? Where are we going? What's the application here? Well, just in the book of John, this is helpful for us to kind of think about there's been several roles mentioned um, that the Holy Spirit does. Supporter, teacher, interpreter, interceder, advocate, representative, and witness. So first of all, we got to know that what does the Bible say the Spirit does? And so and the, the first thing is to be aware of that. Just to be aware of the Spirit's operation in your life in all of those areas. So anything that you're, as a follower of Jesus, that you're current, currently experiencing, you, it's probably as a result of the Spirit in one of these areas. And there's other things he does too. That's just in the book of John that we've seen. 
Listen to 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. This is Paul, in one of his letters, talking about um, the Spirit's role in, in changing us and making us look more like Jesus. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So we should be free. We should experience freedom. This is why it's in the mission statement of our church, leading people to find freedom and joy in Jesus. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there should be freedom for us. Verse 18, and we all, the church, the all there is to the church, with unveiled face beholding or kind of consuming or looking at the glory of the Lord, which again is one of the Spirit's jobs, right, to magnify God, are being transformed or changed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Paul is attributing the change that happens inside of a believer to the Spirit. This is one of, our, one of our applications. Be aware of the Spirit's work in our lives that he's changing us. Number two, we can be bold in our declaration and demonstration of the gospel. This should go without saying, right? We've looked at all the things the Spirit is doing inside of us as we are on mission, as we live, and as Jesus sends us out as brothers and sisters in Christ, right? The Holy Spirit is always working in us. We see today to convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Right, we need to be more like Peter, right? Just a knucklehead coward who at one point in time was scared to death of everything going on around him and was threatened by this little girl in the courtyard, if you remember. Just a coward. And then just weeks later, he's preaching with the boldness without any fear and the Spirit using him to lead 5,000 people to come to know him and bring them to faith. That's mind-boggling who the Spirit uses to bring people to God. So let's be bold. It could be any of us in this room who have the Holy Spirit inside of them. Let's walk in that. Let's be bold in our demonstration and declaration of the gospel, how we serve and how we speak of Jesus. Last thing, be comforted by him. A lot of us come in here, maybe, maybe you feel hated, like we talked about last week. Maybe you feel hated. Maybe you feel marginalized. Maybe you're hurting. Maybe you feel lost or stressed, or doubting, or anger, any, any of the other the, the human emotions that are difficult, that are hard as a result of our broken world. Receive the Holy Spirit, and know the Holy Spirit is a comforter. He's there to help you. He's there to comfort you, and some of us just need to hear that this morning. Like, trust that the Holy Spirit is there. God's presence is inside of you to comfort you. I want to close by just reading the fruit of the Spirit. This is I think the best passage to understand what the Holy Spirit is trying to produce in us. And hopefully now that we have some context that we're, we probably, a lot of us maybe have even memorized the fruit of the Spirit passage, and now we can connect it back to what Jesus has been talking about in John 14, 15, and 16 here in the ministry of the Spirit. Just listen to these words that we all want. All human beings want these things inside of us. This is what the Spirit produces in us. Love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Let's ask him that he would give us those things. Let's pray. Father, it would be appropriate to ask like we do every week, but especially today, to help. Help us. We open your word, we, we try to understand your word, and you teach us today about how the Spirit is active in the world and moving in the world and how it, how it um, is involved in relationships and how we're speaking and serving you. I pray that you would continue to, to, to help us understand the Spirit. We know that he's mysterious. He's sometimes hard to understand. Help us understand more about the Spirit. 
And I pray you would help us in these three areas. Help us be more aware of the Spirit working in us. Yes, we honor and worship God the Father. Yes, we love and follow Jesus the Son. But help us not forget about the Holy Spirit that's with us all the time and working inside of us all the time if we're followers of Jesus. Help us be more bold in our declaration and demonstration of the gospel as we leave this place. The moment we leave this place, I pray that you would help us be bold knowing that the Holy Spirit's job is to demonstrate and declare the gospel so we can be open and just allow the Spirit and kind of follow him into the work he wants to do through us. No matter where we're at in this room, how broken, how in, in gripped in sin we are, he can still use us. We don't have to know a bunch of stuff. We see God using broken, messed up people all throughout the scriptures to accomplish his purposes. Help us believe that. And lastly, comfort us. I pray if the, those, my brothers and sisters in this room that are struggling, I pray that you would meet them where they're at and they would trust and believe that your spirit dwells inside of them. And part of the job is to be a comforter of the Holy Spirit and he wants to do that now. So help us in that way as well. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.